Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Well, praise God. It's good to be in this house today. It's good to worship with you all and praise with you all. Appreciate the worship team and their passion that they have for what they do. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, started a series entitled Dudes with Tudes, which essentially is a closer look at some of those people in the Bible and the attitudes they displayed. And what's amazing to me is it's those very attitudes that make these guys so relatable to us. They were human. They made mistakes. How many can relate with that? You're human and you make mistakes. A few of you in here do that. And of course, sometimes they displayed great attitudes. And then there were those times that they remind us of ourselves when we're not exactly at our best. It's been said that success is 80% attitude and 20% aptitude. This means that talent, which is usually the part of an individual success that is most admired and, and celebrated, that's, his, that's forced us to focus on the wrong thing. Talent is a small part. Ability is great, but your attitude in dealing with different situations and circumstances as they come about will always determine your level of success in any area of your life. And church, it's no different in spiritual matters. It's, it's no different in our pursuits to be successful Christians or successful kingdom builders. Your attitude is at the very front lines of your personal war against your own spiritual mediocrity. I want to say that again, because I want you to feel the weight of that statement. Your attitude is at the front lines of your personal war against your own spiritual mediocrity. And that's true whether you realize it or not. Two weeks ago, I talked about the rotten attitude of Jonah, so full of hatred toward a people that threatened his people's way of life, that he willfully disobeyed God. He said these words, I'd rather die than do what you say, than do what God asks of me. I'd rather just be dead. Pastor Jared shared about a dude with a tude last Sunday. He talked about Jacob and how his attitude of perseverance took him from success to success. He was a dude with a good attitude. And I'd, I'd like to thank Pastor Jared for being a dude with a good attitude himself. Uh, last week. I called him around 8 p.m. Saturday night and told him that I decided to stay home and keep my germs to myself. He made it easy for me and took the challenge on, and he stayed up late and let the Holy Spirit direct him, and he gave a great message with very little notice. Appreciate that, Pastor Jared. Give him a hand. He's a good man. <clears throat> you know, church, life is about change. I think Pastor Calloway used to say this. And success in life is all about your ability to handle that change. A right attitude will catapult you through those changes like nothing else. And I know we're going through a lot of things in this world. I, I, we talk about it just about every week. I make some reference to, man, we're going through a lot. The world's in a weird place. We all know that. We see it. We feel it. We've experienced it. But I'm telling you, a good attitude will catapult you right through it. Right through it. That'd be a good spot to say amen, by the way. Are you listening this morning? Woo. Life can be cruel and difficult, 
And I know there are a lot of you that have been really going through some struggles. I, I, I know that. And I don't, I, don't, I don't marginalize that whatsoever. I get it. But let me be Mr. Encouragement here this morning and tell you the struggles are never going to go away entirely in this life. That's Mr. Encouragement talking. And you're not going to change that. But hear my heart today. You may have every right to have a bad attitude or a sour attitude because of what you have been going through. Got to move my pages here. They're stuck together. You might have a terrible attitude of what you've been go- because of what you've been going through or just an off attitude. But that doesn't mean that it's beneficial for you to have that sour, bad, terrible attitude. As the Word of God says, everything that is permissible isn't necessarily profitable. You may have the right to have a bad attitude, but do you really? And is it really beneficial for you to have that? It might not keep you out of heaven, but is it good for you to maintain the sour attitude? Absolutely not. So that's why we're in this series, looking at some guys who had some attitudes, guys that we can relate to, good and bad attitudes. And today's dude with the toot is, he's never mentioned by name in the Bible. He is simply referred to as a wealthy young man who had some kind of leadership role bestowed on him. He was a rich young ruler. And his story can be found in Matthew chapter 19 as well as the 18th chapter of Luke. And we're going to start with the Luke account, or actually stick on the Luke account today, but I encourage you to go back to Matthew 19 this week and read it. Um, this guy, I, I've studied him for two weeks now. He, he's just, there's amazing how much stuff is in here, and I hope I can get to it all today. But, but listen, listen carefully as we go through this. I'm going to read Luke 18, 18 through 23. Here we go. A ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And this rich young ruler said to Jesus, all these things I've kept since my youth. Now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute that money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely wealthy. Verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him said this, and so who can be saved then? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So first of all, I want to actually try to look at this guy and and figure out what we know about him. Luke refers to him as a ruler, a certain ruler. A ruler questioned him, as the scripture I just read starts off. The Greek word for for ruler here means one who has administrative authority, a leader or an official. And the reason I say the Greek word, some of you may not know this, but the, the New Testament was written originally in Greek. So it's very helpful to go back to the original Greek word that is used in this spot and say, okay, what was the meaning of that? Because how many know meanings of words sometimes change over centuries? Okay, that's why we do that. And I'm not gonna give you the Greek words this morning, but I, I wanna just tell you that Greek word, the definition of it, 
For ruler, which is translated into English, ruler is one who has administrative authority, a leader or an official. It is often used in reference to various Jewish leaders, some of which were in charge of the local synagogue. And even the Sanhedrin, who were a group of judges that interpreted the Jewish law as given by God and applied it to situations that were brought before them. So the Sanhedrin were like this, this group of judges and people brought their issues. They, they looked at it according to the, the Torah, the Old, Test, the, the Old Testament, the, the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, and then, and then they, would, they would come to a, a, a judgment over those situations. That's the Sanhedrin. And sometimes rulers were rulers over the Sanhedrin. This specific ruler, however, it's, it's, was probably not a member of the Sanhedrin. And, and I, I want to go over this. It's a little detailed, but I want you to see how the Bible always gives you clues as to who these people are. They're not just, it's not just some ruler. When we say ruler, we think, oh, it's a king of somewhere, right? But it was different than that. This specific ruler was probably not a member of the Sanhedrin or over them in any way because his question to Jesus simply implies that he believed in life after death. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we know historically that generally speaking, the Sanhedrin did not believe in life after death. They were Jewish people, they were judges, but they didn't believe in life after death. So we know he probably wasn't a ruler over those people. That gives us a clue He may have just been a ruler in responsibility when it came to the management of the temple. That's very possible, probable. An administrator of leader, administrative leader, perhaps. And when you read the account in Matthew, this ruler is referred to as being young. Luke never says he was young, but Matthew does. That's where sometimes it's good to go back and forth and get all the information together and look at it and say, okay, who was this guy? Because it gives you insight to his attitude and where he was coming from. We're going to get to that. The Greek word that's used in Matthew, that's translated young, means a relatively young man, a youth between the ages of 24 and 40. Luke says that he was extremely wealthy. Going back to Luke, the Greek word he uses means one who has an abundance of earthly possessions, an abundance that exceeds normal experience, normal riches, or normal wealth. He had a lot of stuff, he was wealthy. And an adjective is even used in Luke to say that his abundance was extreme abundance, extremely more than one of his age and experience would normally have. And, and I wanted you to know that in more detail, who, who this dude was, because if you really know him, then if you really don't know him, then you really won't know or understand his attitude and how it may relate back to you this morning. As I was thinking about this young guy who's, you get all the information together, you know, that you can pull out from all the different sources of, of Scripture where the story might be, might be spoken, Scriptures that pertain to it, cross-referencing all that, and you, you put it all together, and then you begin to meditate on it. Okay, God, what are you trying to tell us in the story? And I was thinking about this young guy whose wealth exceeded the norm, who was given administrative authority, enough to be referred to as a ruler. I, I began to think about Wisdom and knowledge, they're both wonderful, and we probably all heard people say that knowledge is power, right? But I say to you that knowledge without wisdom is useless, maybe even dangerous. Proverbs encourages us to attain both. 
But wisdom is the ability to apply the knowledge that you attain and apply it effectively. Knowledge is great if you have wisdom, but if you are without wisdom, mere knowledge may do nothing more for you than puff you up and give you pride. Knowledge without wisdom can steer you right into that place of pride and arrogance that we don't want to be. And let's be honest, we often put people on pedestals, those who are amazingly successful at a young age. They're often given positions of authority based off their success. Money is power and money is a byproduct of success. And so when we see these young people who are so successful and they have all this money, we, we, we put them on a pedestal and we think, oh, I want to be like that. We see that in sports, don't we? Don't we? We see that in sports. We, sports figures who are incredibly successful, given all this money all of a sudden, and they don't even know what to do with it. And a lot of times they lose it all. It's not, it's not wrong for me to say this. People that, that attain massive amounts of wealth, wealth through winning the lottery, at, I think it's 70% is the figure that's often, often a given. 70% of lottery winners are broke within seven years, completely broke no matter how much they get because they have no wisdom to deal with that kind of finance. Wisdom is important. It's more important than knowledge, even though knowledge is important. We're supposed to get both, but we don't need to get puffed up with just the knowledge that we have, and often that occurs. It's just when we instantly view someone as wise and knowledgeable just because of their success and wealth when it becomes really a problem. And I think this rich young guy, and, and maybe I'm speculating here a bit, but I think he was a young buck who had the world by the tail. He was wealthy. We don't know how he got wealthy. Maybe he inherited it. Maybe he worked hard and earned it. That, that's possible. But I, I do know that wealth, even his great wealth, didn't make him instantly wise. He could have been given his position of authority because of that wealth. But he also could have worked very hard and moved up the ranks, so to speak. I imagine that his wealth didn't hurt him or hold him back in his pursuit of power and authority, though. And we can, we can build up our knowledge rather quickly, but there are no shortcuts for wisdom. That might be worth, worth writing down. There, there, there's, you can build knowledge quickly, but there's no shortcuts for wisdom. There just isn't. We know he was earnest. He was eager to know more. We know that about him. His question to Jesus seems to be something that he had pondered for a while, and I don't think he was just asking on a whim. We, we know that he's been trying to earn his ticket to heaven by being good. That seems to be uh, maybe something that was going on in his heart because of his question. He said to Jesus, all these things I have kept since my youth, when, when Jesus quoted the, the commandments to him. And I think this dude prided himself on keeping those commandments, like many of the religious leaders of the time. I do think it's interesting, though, and I'm, I'm just trying to figure this guy out. Are you with me this morning? Yeah. Giving you information about him, and you, this, is how you, this is how you get to the truth in some of, these, uh, some of these stories, some of these parables, and this isn't a parable, this, I think, is a historical event, but uh, uh, this is how you get to the truth. That's deep down inside the word. You dig it out. I think it's interesting that he was a youth himself. That's how Matthew described him. But he speaks as if he's no longer a youth, as if his days of being a youth were way in the past. 
Is that a contradiction or a misconception of himself? Because I, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I think he believed the hype. Man, you're amazing. You are young and successful. You have authority and position. You are so good, Mr. Rich Young Ruler. You've got it all going on. Everybody likes you. Everybody wants, to, uh, uh, wants what you have. Everybody is amazed by you. If I were you, I'd want to be me too. That's what he was saying. Look at how he speaks to Jesus. That's another insight. And I say, maybe I should go back here and, and, and clarify this. He didn't think of himself as a youth, even though he was one. Matthew called him one, but look at what he says. All these things I've kept since I was a youth. Like it's way back there. Matthew calls him a youth right now. That's that misconception I think he was having. And then we look at how Jesus speaks, or how he speaks to Jesus. He, he, he doesn't call him Lord, you notice that? He doesn't refer to him as master. He doesn't say savior or Messiah. He calls him good teacher. And at first glance, this looks like a compliment, but is it? This guy knew who Jesus claimed himself to be. I mean, it was, everybody knew who Jesus was saying he was. Everybody was talking about him. And he knew of his teachings, and he knew the, the, the large crowds that followed him. He had to have known that. And it seems to me that calling him good teacher was coming from a place where he himself felt that he was equal to Jesus. Or as if he was giving a fellow colleague some props, acknowledging Jesus as someone who was attracting some pretty large crowds and, and teaching some pretty profound things. Hey, good teacher. Hey, you and I can, can talk on the same level, can't we? we we're, we're both pretty successful. People respect us and listen to what we have to say. You're young, I'm around your same age. You might be able to help me with a question that I've been wrestling with. I, I mean, I, I'm pretty much doing everything that I know how to do, but I still feel like something's missing. There's a hole and a void within me, and I'm, I'm just spitballing here, but what do, you, what do you say that I must do to inherit eternal life? What can, I, what can I do to know that I have a heaven waiting for me? And here it is, church. I know this guy has an attitude, and not a good one, because of how Jesus responds to his question. He doesn't even answer it right away. He doesn't say, well, this is what you need to do to go to heaven. He says, he first addresses the guy's attitude, and he says this. He flat out, well, first of all, he flat out ignores the question. He begins with, he says, why do you call me good? Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? I mean, I think Jesus had this laser-focused way of getting right to the heart of people's issues. And he does it with us too. When you look in the mirror long enough and are honest with yourself. Why do you call me good? He says, no one is good except God. So are you, I think this is what Jesus was saying. Are you acknowledging that I am the true Messiah and that I am the son of God? Because no one's good but God. Or are you just trying to place me on the same level as all the other men who are effective teachers? Are you trying to put me on your same level? Hey, good teacher, I'm good, you're good, let's talk. Let's pontificate about how to get to heaven. That's how I see this guy. Jesus responds to his question with his own question and then just goes to the answer that any religious person of the day and time would have given. So Jesus is saying, okay, you're calling me good? Well, then I'll give you, I'll give you the, 
the, the answer that your colleagues would give you. He says this, you know the commandments. You have to obey them. Obey this one, obey this one, obey this one. And when the rich young ruler says, yeah, yeah, I, I already do that, then Jesus speaks the words that pierce this guy's heart. He goes right to the issue at hand. In Luke 18, 22, he says, now when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. And when Jesus says stuff like this in the word of God, don't just think about it in reference to the person that, you're talk, that he's talking to. Think about it in reference to that, but think about it in reference to you because he's speaking to us through his word right there. One thing you lack. And I've preached messages on this before that everybody has one thing that they struggle with, at least one thing. And Jesus knows what it is. But he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He sees this guy's attitude and the motives of his heart, and he lays it all out for him. He says, sell all you have and give the money to the poor. That will give you treasure in heaven. Then leave your position of authority, your occupation of status that you love so much. I think that's not said, but it's in there. Your status as a ruler. Leave it behind and follow me. We oftentimes read this verse and we focus on selling our possessions and giving it to the poor and it stops there. But Jesus also says, come follow me. Leave it all behind. I think we sing a song about that. Leave it all behind, don't we? Leave it all behind. Jesus says, sell that stuff, all of it. Give the money to the poor so you have nothing. Walk away from your reputation. Walk away from all those people that love you, all those people that are worshiping you a little bit, giving you props all the time. Walk away from your authority. Walk away from your position, what people think of you, all that you've built up, and come follow me. That was a lot in one verse. This guy was really good at presenting himself. Hear me, church. He was really good at presenting himself as the real deal to the people around him. He was young, he was intelligent, he had money, he had been given authority, but there was a cancerous, rotten attitude within him that was just lurking beneath the surface. It was an attitude that only Jesus could see. I think this guy didn't even see it himself. He, 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 Truthfully, he couldn't even see it himself because he was so wrapped up in it. That's how pride is. The interesting thing about pride is you don't know you have it because you have it. Does that make sense? Well, I don't have pride. Really? The pride is the very thing that makes you blind to having it. He looked like a person, like a wonderful example of what people should aspire to, but he was prideful and arrogant. And let me say this, there is nothing more dangerous than a person who lives in self-deception. That's worth writing down. There's nothing more dangerous than a person who lives in self-deception. Personally, I view this guy as an elitist, he loved his life, his money, his position of authority. He loved it so much that he was very sad, it says. Very sad after Jesus told him what he must do. He was sad because he was unwilling to do it. He didn't want to give all that up. He didn't want to walk away from 
what he had and the life that was given to him and reminded me of John 12, 25, the one who loves his life loses it and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. It's easy to look at this guy and think, wow, he really missed it. But I would say that a majority of us here this morning, we actually have the same attitude from time to time. And I'm not here to beat the sheep this morning. (laughs) But it's hard for me to feel the weight of these scriptures in reference to how they relate to me individually as I read them and study them and not share some of that with you. Please know it comes from a place of love. We have the same attitude from time to time. We don't like to admit it, but we do. The question this dude with the tude brings up in my mind is this. What lies just beneath the surface of who people perceive me to be? What is really going on in here? What attitude lurks within my heart that would cause me to turn away from Christ as he points it out to me? causes me to become very sad, even depressed. I want you, God. I want you, God. I I worship you, God. I want to live for you. I'm coming to church. I'm doing all the right things. I'm I'm, I'm here for you, God. I I love you, God. What what do you want from me, Lord? What what do you want me to do? Or how can I get closer to you? How how can I feel even more secure in you? And he points something out. We go, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I'm worshiping you, Lord. Why, why, would you, why would you say that to me? I'm not talking about earning your salvation through some kind of works. I, I don't want you to get into that, but, but, but that, that's what gets most of us into trouble to begin with when we start trying to earn it by what we do for him. You can't do anything for God. You know, Christianity is all about what he's done for us, not about what we can do for him. What we do for him is, that, is an outflow of the love that we have for him because of what he's done for us. End of story. I'm talking about having the right attitude. Maybe like the, the psalmist had when he cried out to God in Psalm 139. The end of that psalm, the last two verses say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This was King David. It was his words. He was a man of great sin, but he was also a man of great repentance. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. Search me, O God. That's the cry of a man or a woman that has a right attitude. See if there's any offensive way in me and help me lay it down once and for all and help me walk in the paths of righteousness. Lead me in that way that leads to everlasting life. See, this rich young ruler, his question had the implication of what's the least I need to do to go to heaven? Because I've done everything. I mean, I've done it. I still don't feel right. What can I do? It was the opposite of search my heart and find anything in me that's offensive, God. I don't want to go on uh, or hold on to a a thing that's not of you. That's the right attitude. And and I almost see this, and again, I'm, I'm, 
I'm not trying to add to Scripture. I'm, I'm, I'm just viewing it as I put all that information together and I see this, I see this guy sitting there. I see him sitting there kind of, kind of reclined. Hey, good teacher. I see you walking by there. What, what must I do? And then you see the opposite of King David after he sinned so greatly, laying on his face. Search me, O oh God. Search me, O oh God. Pull out anything in me that's not of you. Lead me in my attitudes. Lead me in my actions. Lead me in my, my heart of hearts, God, that, that, that I would never uh, be, be subject to you taking your presence away from me. I'm getting into another psalm now. He cried out to God with a whole different attitude than this guy. We can put on the facade. We can, we can do it so well. We've gotten very good at it. So well that we fool everyone around us into thinking that we are amazing in our walks with God. We are so masterful at presenting that facade that we even fool ourselves. But when we encounter Jesus, he has a way of cutting right to the chase. He has a way of putting the reality of absolute truth in our face so we can uh, see, the thing, see things the way they really are. And it's not a condemning truth, but a convicting and a restorative truth that he desires for us to see. When God shows you something within your heart, an attitude of your heart that's not of him, that's because he loves you. Not because he's trying to step on you or kick you to the curb. It's because he loves you and he wants you to experience the intimacy that he has for you. He wants you to get rid of all those roadblocks that get in the way between you and him. Jesus saw the sadness in his face when he said, sell all you have, give it to the poor, leave everything behind and come follow me. He saw the sadness in his face and then he says to him, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to get to heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which we all know is impossible, but then Jesus says with, with what's impossible for people is possible with God. Church, I, I don't want you to think that I, I think it's wrong to be wealthy and that's not what Jesus was saying here at all. Everyone here this morning is actually wealthy by the standards of the rest of the world, if you didn't know that. Most of you are in the top 1% to 2% income bracket in the world. Just being Americans, you have that luxury and that joy and that privilege and that blessing. But maybe that's why it's so hard for us as Americans to avoid self-centeredness. I'm not accusing anyone of anything here, but it, it is so easy to get caught up in loving our lives and what we have all the blessings that we have, all the things we take for granted. It's so easy to pat ourselves on the back for how wonderful we are. And we live right, so that's why we have that stuff. There's people who live right who have nothing, by the way. We give ourselves a pat on the back and we celebrate how wonderful we are and that when something then when something doesn't go according to plan or just doesn't go right for us, we get sad, we get depressed even. Well, God, where are you? What are you doing to me? Well, it's the devil, he's taking it. 
Well, maybe true. But the first thing we should do is not point the finger at God and say, what are you doing to me? And say, Lord, I know that this world is a hard place to be in. I know I'm going to go through struggles, circumstances, and situations. I know it's going to be difficult. But Lord, help me. Help me to get to that place where I can count it all joy. Help me to be able to look in the mirror and see reality of who I really am. Maybe there's something about this situation that can change me, that can kind of, kind of loosen something up within my heart that isn't right. And then I'm going to learn from it, and I'm going to grow from it, and I'm going to count it all joy. But to take it out on God and blame him, that doesn't make any sense. It's just another attitude that occurs when we hold on to the things of this world and our life so tightly. And is it really all that difficult to see that we are often like this dude with a dude? We look around at those around us and conclude that we are somehow superior in our spirituality. And I'm, I'm not just trying to make something up here, but I've heard Christians, and let me be honest, I've, even, I've done this more than once, looked at a person or a people group or a, maybe those in a different financial income bracket than myself, and I've heard Christians do this with whole races of people, and I've heard others do this with people in another foreign country, in a, in a foreign land, because they're, they're pagans or they're godless. And we lump them together and we, we, we look at us and we, we say, oh, we're, we're so spiritual, that's why we're so blessed. And that pride sets in without us even knowing it. Let me say it this way. When we start looking at those around us instead of looking in the mirror to determine our level of spirituality, then we've missed the mark completely. It's about you and him, not about how much more spiritual you are than your neighbor. Well, they do that. I'm better than them, so now I feel good. Feel good when you look just like Jesus when you look in the mirror. When you're constantly striving for that, to look like him, to be like him, to act like him, to talk like him, to think like him, to feel like him, to see others through his eyes. And make no mistake, we do this all the time without even knowing it. Every time we look at people and their behaviors and see them as less than us, every time we forget to look at them through the eyes of Christ, every time we stop seeing others that we work with or related to or neighbors with, when we stop seeing others as souls, we start to develop the same elitist attitude that this rich young ruler had and, and that we are somehow or, or can be good enough by doing The only reason any of us have a hope for heaven in here this morning is because of the cross and the blood that Jesus shed on it. End of story. That is the only reason. And thank God it's by his grace that we heard the truth at some point in our life and God had worked out the circumstances and everything that we could hear it at a time when we would receive it. 
Some of us rejected it for years and then received it. It's hard for me to look at this guy and not see moments in my own life where I've been the same way. Do you see that for you? Can you connect those dots a little bit? Say, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm a dude with a dude too, or a dudette with a dude. I want to pray. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm through preaching this morning. Search us, O oh God. And know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. And Lord, if there's any offensive way within us, help us to get rid of it. Lead us in that way everlasting. Lead us on that path to eternal life. Lord, we want to have the right heart, the right attitude. We have so much, God. You've given us so much. Help us to praise you for that and not hold on to it so tightly that we get prideful and bitter if anything comes up against, against it and it seems to slip through our fingers. Help us not love our life so much that we lose it. We just want to be thankful for it, God. Father, you know what lurks beneath the surface of what we show people around us. That thought alone, God, should make us shake. We identify those things right now, God, those that one thing like the rich young ruler had. He had one thing, but Lord, I, I know there's many of us who have more than one thing. But God, help us identify that one thing. Even right now as we're praying, as we're sitting, as we're listening to your Holy Spirit. And God, we place that thing on the altar and we say, no more, God. I'm not letting that thing get between me and you any longer. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Change me from the inside out. I give you my life. I give you my heart. I give you the controls once again, God. I ask you to come in and just be my Savior, but be my Lord. Be my Lord. You are not just a good teacher. You are not just a an amazing character from the past. You are Lord. You are God of all. You are my Savior, my Master. 
You have full control of me, God. I want to submit to you in all my ways. And not just the ways that I feel I can submit and the other ones I'm going to not submit. Let this body of believers, God, become that pure, spotless bride that you long to be with. Spotless because our sins have been washed by the blood. Let our love be pure for you and let it produce good works in us. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.